Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Professor Robert Kevin Jakes' work, Makers of Islamic Civilization, focuses on the life of one of the most eminent Muslim scholars, Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. Jakes provides his readers with a concise yet intimate biography of this great scholar. Beginning life as an orphan, Ibn Hajar rose to the most prominent academic position as the chief Shafi'i judge of the Egyptian Mamluk system. The accomplished made the accomplishment made all the more remarkable as he contested with countless political machinations and personal tragedy, including the death of many of his children. While his contemporaries rose and fell due to their inability to successfully navigate the ever-changing political landscape, Jake describes Ibn Hajar's longevity and legacy to his enchanting personality, religious devotion, and inimitable acumen, qualities often ignored or downplayed by social historians studying the political intrigues of Mamluk society. Though Jakes emphasizes the significance of Ibn Hajar's works of history and biography, he devotes much time to Ibn Hajar's massive commentary on al-Bukhari Sahih, for it is this work that unlocks the thoughts and disposition of this scholar. The study of Hadith became Ibn Hajar's way to combat both personal losses and the constant threat of plague phenomena which he believed were not occasions of divine retribution for the transgressions of the community. Excellent in its composition and structure, Makers of Islamic Civilization, Ibn Hajar, is a book which will benefit both the novice and expert in the study of Islam. Hi, my name is Matthew Long. Today we're talking to Robert Kevin Jakes about his new book, Ibn Hajar. I've read it and I can highly recommend it. I especially like the way that he discusses Ibn Hajar in one of the best detailed biographies available in the English language. Kevin, yes. I was wondering if you would begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. I uh, have a Bachelor's uh, of Arts degree in Political Science from Arizona State University and uh, then a Master's degree in Religious Studies, also from Arizona State, uh, where I focused on uh, Islam, uh, primarily Islam in Southeast Asia, and then a, a PhD from Emory University in the Department of uh, uh, West, or in the program of West and South Asian uh, religions, uh, where I my research focused primarily on uh, medieval Islamic law, uh, particularly uh, Islamic law and Islamic historiography of Islamic law uh, during the Mamluk period. Very interesting. And so can you tell us how you came to write this book? Well, I was at uh, uh, Oxford University at the time at the uh, uh, Center for Islamic Studies uh, on a one-year fellowship uh, finishing up uh, my first book, uh, which looks at Ibn Hajar's uh, uh, contemporary, Ibn Qadi Shohba. And uh, the center... uh, publishes a series of biographies on, on notable Muslims. And I floated the idea of Ibn Hajar because I've been fascinated, fascinated by him for a, a long time. 
and uh, they liked the idea and they liked my prospectus and and that was uh, why I, I wrote the book very good so can you kind of walk us through a little bit uh, the different parts of your book here and kind of give us what you how you kind of set up the structure of it you have basically a biography of Ibn Hajar broken down into a number of sections right the the typical uh, biography of medieval Muslims uh, tends not to really focus on the lives of the individuals. Uh, there, there are more intellectual histories that examine their writings uh, and not really at the, the things that they went through uh, during their lives and on the, the kinds of social, political, cultural, uh, environmental, and religious currents that form them as individuals, uh, largely because we just have a lack of records uh, about uh, the lives of, of individuals. Uh, and so the typical biography uh, will look at in detail at the writings of an individual, but rarely at the overall context of their life. It usually, uh, you know, part of one chapter would be devoted to providing the context of their lives. Uh, Ibn Hajar was a different person in that um, – he lived during the 15th century uh, of the Circassian Mamluk uh, period when um, the writing of contemporary history was very, very popular. Uh, and not only that, uh, he was an extremely charismatic and popular uh, religious figure who had uh, both a, a number of uh, uh, very, very close disciples and a number of enemies who, uh, who wrote about him. Uh, during the context uh, or during the period of his life. And after he died, uh, he had a large number of biographies written specifically about him by his students. And so he's a rare individual in that we have a huge amount of personal biographical detail about him that's written from a variety of points of view so that I was able to build a traditional biography uh, that focuses in fact very little uh, on on his writings and focuses more on the things that uh, he lived through and how he reacted to those things. So can you begin by kind of talking about his early life then from his birth to about his uh, 22nd year? Yeah. Um, Ibn Hajar is a, a fascinating character in that uh, so much of his life had to do uh, and the formation of his identity and his worldview and, and himself as a person uh, has to do with, as it does with, with most of us, uh, his experiences as a child. And, um, and as I said before, just a moment ago, uh, we happen to have a huge amount of information about uh, his early years, uh, which is somewhat unusual uh, even for, for contemporary historical figures. Uh, Ibn Hajar uh, was the product of a marriage uh, between, of course, his father and his mother, uh, but they were from completely different uh, social, political, and economic uh, environments. His father uh, was a um, primarily someone who wanted to be a poet more than anything else, and he was also uh, a, um, a intensely into Islamic mysticism, into Sufism, as Ibn Hajar was himself. His mother, on the other hand, was a member of the Karabiya uh, Merchants Guild, uh, which was a uh, at the time probably the largest 
uh, economic guild in the world. It formed sometime in the 11th or 12th century. Uh, we don't even know what the term Carabillo refers to, but they pretty much controlled the vast majority of spice that was uh, imported from Southeast Asia uh, through uh, and around uh, the Muslim world and into Europe. And it was a very closed group, so that um, he, uh, so that uh, monies that were earned within the Karabia uh, had to stay within the Karabia. So that Ibn Hajar had a half brother uh, that was the pr- product of a marriage between uh, Ibn Hajar's mother and her first husband, who um, uh, was able to inherit all of her monies when she died. Where uh, where Ibn Hajar was cut off. He, he received no inheritance from what was apparently a very vast amount of wealth. Uh, so that uh, after his parents' uh, divorce, uh, shortly after his birth, uh, Ibn Hajar grows up in fairly modest circumstances. Uh, traveling with his father, his father tried to be a, a jurist but was not terribly successful at it, uh, became a fairly noted poet. Uh, and... Um, uh, then Ibn Hajar's uh, uh, father dies and leaves him into the custody of a, of a of a family friend who is also a member of the Karabia Merchants Guild, who um, takes him under his wing and provides an education for him, gives him an opportunity that he probably wouldn't have otherwise had, where he was able to go to Mecca uh, to study Hadith and to, to study the rudimentary elements of Islamic law, and, which is primarily what begins in, in your early uh, teen years, um, uh, what I guess today we would call our tweens, uh, somewhere between 10 and 13, uh, with memorizing the Quran, or at least specific parts of the Quran, and uh, memorizing uh, specific hadith. And uh, he goes to Mecca and studies, but he was a poor student. Uh, he had a, a, what I think today we would call ADHD. Uh, he was easily distracted, and, and uh, his uh, teachers would complain that, that uh, whenever something was going on outside, uh, he would become distracted and he would wander off. And indeed, Asqawi, his, his probably chief student, uh, comments on this in his uh, massive two-volume biography of Ibn Hajar, that even as a, an older uh, man, uh, Ibn Hajar would hear something in the street uh, and just get up and wander off and just come back sometime later as if nothing ever happened. And um, so he apparently uh, uh, never overcame his distractibility, uh, something that uh, I'm hoping my children do. And, um, but even with that, he was recognized fairly early on as a very, very intelligent, uh, person. And, uh, he goes back to Cairo from, uh, from Mecca and begins, uh, to, in his mid teens, develop a, a, a capacity for memorization, uh, and, uh, which marks this beginning, uh, the beginning of his, his, uh, uh, quest to become a jurist. Uh, and um, a lot of things are going on in the Mamluk world at this time, and uh, part- uh, particularly the uh, uh, onrush of, of revolutions and the, trans- uh, the transition from the uh, Bahri Mamluk period uh, to the, the uh, uh, Circassian period, where the movement of, of Mamluks who were primarily descended from um, what were at the time called Turks 
but we're really, for the most part, people uh, who were uh, from uh, the Balkans, uh, although there were Mamluks, these slave soldiers that were sold into slavery as children and then raised uh, as Muslims within these military academies. And then if they were lucky enough, when they would reach a certain age and have a show a certain promise, they would be freed, uh, be manumitted, and they would uh, um, become emirs at that point. And uh, But there were a number of Mamluks from all over uh, Europe and uh, Asia. Uh, there are travel uh, uh, biography or there are travel accounts from Europeans who went on pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem. Uh, from this period a little bit before, talking about uh, running into Mamluks who were German and who were English or French. And uh, so they were from a a wide range of places. Uh, But uh, in the late uh, uh, 14th uh, century, there was a transition, an ethnic transition between these largely European uh, Mamluks to these more Central Asian Mamluks. And uh, this period was one of of intense civil war uh, that uh, that uh, completely disrupted the the community uh, and the state uh, so that uh, people who were training to become jurists and trying to work their way into the system uh, quickly become embroiled in these on one level or another. And Ibn Hajar is an example of such a personality. Ibn, Ibn Hajar is an example of, of someone uh, which is fairly typical, as, as I say, of, of people who, who um, uh, became embroiled in this. I mean, there were some jurists who, uh, or some scholars that were known as Fukaha, uh, which literally means understanders of the will of God, who um, tried to stay out of politics, and they would not accept any kind of judicial appointments uh, that uh, depended on the largesse of, of uh, uh, the state apparatus, and to the extent we can talk about state during this time. Um, because these, these, these official appointments, although they carry the stipend, um, uh, were also rife, rife with corruption. They, uh, uh, you depended on, on – uh, you had to pay bribes uh, that, uh, in order to get an appointment. Um, and you, uh, as a as a Claudi or a judge, it was just understood that you would accept bribes uh, in order to rule in a particular way. And Ibn Hajar, in his later life, was no, not immune to this. Uh, it was part of the system, and he both uh, accepted bribes and then would pass a piece of those bribes up the chain and uh, to to the jurists that were ranking above him, and some of them probably found their way into the pockets of emirs and even the sultan. And when he became chief judge later on in his life, uh, which he was on a number of occasions at different points, uh, uh, he uh, benefited from the passing on of of these bribes. It was just part of the system. And even though he uh, was, by all accounts, an intensely religious, uh, devout man, um, he apparently saw no problem with uh, with the pain or accepting of bribes for both judicial appointments and for judicial decisions. And kind of picking up from, you know, after having started to uh, become a well-known figure, uh, one of these kind of moments of revolution you speak of in your work uh, occurs towards the 
sort of his the end of his formative period and more as he begins to rise, you know, amongst his peers and amongst, you know, internationally, I should say. Right. Well, it was it's a fascinating period that uh, really, I think, deserves far more attention uh, by scholars. But again, we're in a fairly small field, unlike some other areas in the study of medieval, the medieval world. Uh, when the first of the Circassian Mamluks, Barkuk, dies, he leaves behind um, uh, a, an 11-year-old son by the name of Faraj. And uh, Faraj, no, no one expected Faraj to survive. I mean, this was a – the Mamluk political system was literally cutthroat. And uh, people immediately began to uh, contend for the throne, both people who were loyal to Barkuk and, and those who were disloyal to Barkuk during Barkuk's lifetime. He by no means had a, a uh, trouble-free sultanate and was removed from power during a brief period uh, during his sultanate as well. Uh, but Faraj, uh, 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 Faraj was a... a fascinating person in that from the age of 11 until he finally was uh, uh, overwhelmed by his enemies and murdered uh, some, uh, what, 11 or 12 years later, uh, was able to fight off uh, uh, rebellion after rebellion, assassination attempt after assassination attempt. So that early in his sultanate, by the time he was 12 or 13, he had developed a reputation for ferocity that would actually cause seasoned Mamluks opposing him to quit the field when they heard that he had entered. And there were a number of people during this period, during the time of his uh, sultanate, uh, that attempted to overthrow him. One of the reasons why they did this was because um, he was not a Mamluk. He, he was the son of a Mamluk, meaning that he was not ever a slave. Uh, he was born free, and uh, he was therefore not really culturally or or politically, certainly linguistically, uh, a member of the Mamluk system. Uh, he was an outsider, and uh, historically and forever after, until the Mamluks uh, uh, are wiped out by the Ottomans in 1517, uh, the children of sultans who are not raised as Mamluks themselves do not fare well and usually uh, are uh, uh, killed rather quickly. Uh, but Faraj uh, was different. And uh, one of the things that, that happened during his, his period is there were a number of contenders, uh, two of which emerge over time, uh, one by the name of Sheikh, whose uh, throne name was Muayyad Sheikh. And another by the name of Narwuz. Um, Narwuz and Sheikh uh, uh, at different times partnered uh, at different times, partnered with Faraj against one of the others, uh, carried on a protracted civil war uh, that, uh, that occurred in the middle of the uh, uh, invasion of Timor in 1401. He sacks Damascus. Uh, lays waste to the city, kills a large number of people before carting off a large number of artisans and others back to to um, his own territories. And Faraj marches out to to meet Timur, but when news of a coup attempt back in Cairo uh, it passed around camp, 
uh, he quits the field and heads back to Cairo to try to save his throne, leaving the, the, the city open to, to Timur's advance. And so even foreign invasions didn't unite, uh, unite these coalitions. Everyone was using anything possible in order to try to throw him over. And um, a number of things happened during this period of intense civil war. One of which is the, a rapid uh, politicization and monetization of the judiciary. Uh, and Ibn, uh, Ibn Hajar's formative uh, uh, years uh, take place during this, this uh, very, very active period where uh, sultans and contenders for the sultanate throne uh, used the judiciary uh, to raise funds. They, 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 it was very expensive to fight a civil war, and um, and so uh, one of the ways you raised money was when you took over a territory, you fired all the previous uh, judicial and administrative appointees, hired new ones, requiring them all to pay you fees for office, uh, and uh, you uh, would use those fees to help fight your war. Uh, uh, chief judges of various cities also became very important in this in that the main mosques in a town, the, the Jamia, the cathedral mosques in, in different towns like Aleppo and Damascus and, and even smaller places like Hama or, or uh, Aleppo, or not Aleppo, but uh, places like Jerusalem, uh, uh, had uh, 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 a position of chief judge. And the chief judge was normally appointed to be also the preacher of these these cathedral mosques, who would um, preach in the name of the person holding the territory who hired them. And so these these positions of judge merged with that of uh, chief preacher in these cathedral mosques became an important voice of propaganda for these different claimants. Um, and there was also a, a whole uh, network of, uh, of dependency that was created on these judicial appointments because that person then had the responsibility of hiring deputy judges and uh, had the responsibility of appointing representatives in different towns uh, uh, for their authority. And so uh, they brought with them uh, huge networks of patronage that uh, different claimants to the throne tried to use. And it became so confused during this period that there were a number of uh, cities, particularly in Syria, where most of these civil wars were fought, where contenders for the throne would each have their own judges in cities like Damascus or Aleppo and even smaller uh, districts uh, operating sometimes in the city, sometimes outside the city with representatives in the city, uh, alternative courts so that uh, there would be uh, three different Shafi'i chief judges, chief judges in Damascus or Aleppo. There would be uh, uh, sometimes three different Hanafi judges. Uh, most of these these claims didn't care a great deal about the Hanbali and the Malikis because they just didn't have very large followings, and uh, very few people went to them, so they weren't really a source of revenue, and they uh, didn't have very large followings, so therefore they weren't a source of of patronage and networking that they could use to try to to make claims on the throne. And uh, Ibn Hajar comes of age during this period, as I say, and he comes up through the system of being a, an assistant. He at one time even serves as a um, stand-in for a uh, judge 
that uh, uh, was appointed in Damascus, who was afraid to go to Damascus for fear of being killed by the opponent of Sheikh. Or, I'm sorry, the opponent of Faraj. And the civil war finally comes to an end when uh, 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 Faraj marches on Damascus uh, for the last time. Uh, he'd invaded Syria a number of times uh, during the course of his sultanate. And in the middle of a battle, uh, he becomes wounded and loses control of his baggage train, which has all of his gold. And he also loses contact with uh, the uh, luminaries, which it was traditional for the sultan to bring with him uh, when he marched in the field, which included the chief judges of, of, of Egypt, but also, perhaps most importantly in this case, the caliph, uh, who was a descendant of the Abbasid caliphate that, uh, who was held and whose family was held under house arrest in Damascus uh, well into the 16th century. And uh, when uh, Sheikh uh, uh, captures the caliph, he forms a coalition around the caliph, uh, elects the caliph uh, as the new sultan, and support for Faraj evaporates rather quickly. He goes up into the citadel uh, to, with a few of his last remaining supporters, and then after about a week, uh, uh, attempts to give up and is murdered, and his body is thrown out on a garbage heap. And for a very brief period of time, uh, the caliphate uh, is restored uh, for a period of about seven months before Sheikh uh, deposes the caliph and declares himself uh, Sultan Muayyad Sheikh. And so then, uh, following these, uh, following this uh, revolution, um, Ibn Hajar then really begins to rise in prominence, though in terms of, you know, his academic career. Yeah, uh, a number of things happened during this period. He, he, um, for reasons that aren't exactly clear in the, or uh, in the way that things jockey during this position, because loyalty was a very slippery thing, uh, when Sheikh comes to power, uh, he is not identified as a Sheikh loyalist. Uh, these folks were known as the Moyadiyah. Uh, people who had been actively supporters of Sheikh throughout the revolution or throughout his his revolt uh, and who rise to the very tops of their professions based on patronage with Sheikh. Uh, but uh, Ibn Hajar does uh, it through a, a, a different means, uh, not just through patronage, uh, which was for him a, a kind of a, a two-edged sword because he was not part of the Muayyadiyya, uh, but because of a reputation as a brilliant uh, mind when it came to uh, fiqh or to what is today referred to as Islamic law, but literally means an understanding of the will of God, uh, and because of his work on hadith. Very early in his life, he begins uh, working on what becomes his most important uh, text, a massive uh, uh, a massive uh, commentary on uh, the Sahih of uh, al-Bukhari, uh, uh, called the Fat al-Bari fi Sahih Bukhari, uh, in which he uh, attempts to deal with a number of things. Most importantly, he attempts to deal with, over the course of his lifetime in writing this, this text, um, 
uh, he he attempts to deal with the problem of the uh, hadith that appear in Bukhari that are commonly understood to not be sahih, to be those hadith that are uh, do not have the same um, level of strength, literally, as as most of the hadith in Bukhari, and it's always been a puzzle to Muslim scholars as to why uh, al-Bukhari included certain hadith that in a text that's called Sahih, which means those that are the strongest level of, of, uh, of uh, um, uh, health uh, of the hadith. Uh, why he would include hadith with incomplete chains of transmission, uh, why, uh, or some hadith that have no tra- chain of transmission at all, uh, or hadith that were transmitted by people who had less than stellar reputations as hadith transmitters. And uh, he begins working on this text uh, when he's uh, fairly young and continues to write it over the course of his life um, because of the way that the uh, system of what we would today call peer review uh, happens. He would, or uh, happened at the time, he would complete a section of the book or a, or a chapter and then circulated it among his peers. And uh, the peers would read it and would write comments in the margins, and then eventually it would come back to him, uh, and he would look at these comments, and he would revise the text accordingly. And so the reputation of the Fatul Bari uh, becomes uh, rather huge early on, well, well before it had ever gotten out of the introduction stage, even before he had uh, begun looking at Bukhari's text itself. One of the interesting things about Bukhari's text is it doesn't have an introduction. And so why he does things that he does uh, in the text aren't clear to the reader. Uh, the other Sahih that's widely known as uh, Muslim uh, Sahih actually has an introduction, uh, although it's uh, certainly in the English translations, they're not the introduction to the text is, is almost never published. Uh, and even in the Arabic, sometimes uh, the, these uh, don't have the uh, uh, introduction uh, to the text with it. Uh, but Bukhari never produced a text, and so it was a complete mystery as to why he, he organized the text in the way he did and why he included the material uh, that he did include. And uh, it, it was the perfect thing for Ibn Hajar to try to build his reputation on. A number of people had, had tried to t- uh, treat the text, but it's such a massive text. And it had become such an important part of not just legal culture, but uh, but uh, ritual culture uh, by uh, the Mamluk period that uh, anyone attempting to seriously treat the text in detail, looking not only at the material in the the, the, the text, but at the whys and the and uh, the the reasons why Bukhari included what he did in the way that he did. Uh, was a very uh, gutsy thing to do, uh, and he succeeded spectacularly. Probably the most important commentary, when it's finally finished in old age, uh, ever produced on this very, very important, if not the most important uh, Muslim text outside of the Quran. And uh, so he begins to build his reputation on on his commentary on uh, Bukhari, uh, he builds his commentary or his reputation on a number of other works. He was uh, was a uh, taken with history early on, uh, and so he begins to write a number of different histories. Uh, and he becomes particularly enamored with biographical history, which is what the standard 
uh, form of historiography was during the period. And he writes a number of, of very important uh, 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 historical texts over the, the first part of his um, career. Uh, the Dorado Khamina, which was a biographical history of uh, notable people in the century before he lived, in the uh, seventh Islamic century, uh, becomes one of the most important resources for looking at the, the famous and infamous people of that period. Uh, his, his contemporary history that he added to throughout the course of his life up until just shortly before his death, uh, the, uh, in Belchamer, uh, is, is a marvelous text for anyone looking at the period who wants to, to read what is in his published form today, a nine-volume uh, history uh, the Mamluk period that begins on the year that he is born and ends uh, uh, within a few months of his death. Um, it's just a fascinating work. It was a kind of combination history biography or diary, in, or autobiography diary, in which he uh, would comment on things that were happening in the day and then mention things that happened in his own life. And one of the reasons we have so much about him is that as he composed this text over the course of his lifetime, uh, he would put little things in there like uh, uh, love poems to a woman that he met in Aleppo, uh, uh, references to his struggle to have a male child. Uh, he had a number of daughters with whom he was uh, incredibly devoted and mentions little things about them and his grandchildren throughout this text and things about his wife, about his travels, about his conversations with very important uh, people. Uh, and um, uh, it's just a, an incredible text. And it was widely read during his time. It was, uh, as I said, you know, uh, these texts were passed around uh, within this uh, small community. And it really was a small community of people in Cairo and some as far away as, as in Syria and Damascus and Aleppo, uh, who would write commentary in the sides of these, uh, in the marginalia of these texts, and uh, before they made them way, their way back to him. And then he would add more notes to what he had already written, and this thing just becomes bigger and bigger. You'd asked earlier why I got interested in Ibn Hajar, and um, the reason uh, I initially got interested in him is because Ibn Qadi Shuhba, uh, who dies in 1448, uh, who wrote this, uh, the subject of my first book, the Tabakat al-Fuqaha Shafi'i, uh, uh, which looks at the history of the Shafi school of, of law from its first generation up until uh, uh, the generation that just precedes him, um, was written in manuscript form and in a, uh, in a jazza in the colophon of the text. Uh, he mentions how uh, one of his students, a man by the name of Al-Husseini, had taken the text to Cairo and uh, had read it with Ibn Hajar. And indeed, in the manuscript, when you look at the manuscript, um, when the first time I looked at this thing, it, uh, I thought something was wrong, wrong with it. I was looking at the Arabic, and it just didn't look right to me. And then I turned it upside down. And indeed, what Ibn Hajar did was, uh, as uh, Husseini would read this text to him, 
he would uh, uh, lean across the, the, uh, the, where he was sitting across from al-Husseini and strike out sections of uh, Ibn Qadishah's text and write corrections in the margins. But the, he, because he was sitting across from al-Husseini, he would write these things upside down. And um, I was able, by comparing uh, uh, what we know to be Ibn Hajar's writing in other texts and other manuscripts to what's in the marginalia, I was able to, in fact, identify this as, in fact, uh, Ibn Hajar's hand. And uh, the process of this peer review, this reading of uh, other people's texts and commentary on those texts uh, in order to clarify things that are in them, uh, became fascinating for me. It's something I still am, am incredibly interested in, and uh, one of my future projects is to look at this process. And that was what got me interested in this, uh, in Ibn Hajar initially. Uh, and so when he, it's this reputation as a scholar that begins to get the notice of, of Sheikh and Sheikh's representatives, uh, and uh, he is first uh, appointed uh, under Faraj, uh, uh, to the Dar al-Adl, the Palace of Justice in Cairo, uh, and uh, which was a normal starting place for for people who, uh, embarking on a judicial career. Uh, he also begins to teach at a number of madrasas uh, around uh, uh, Cairo, uh, and he begins to have a very devoted following of students. Uh, and this is one of the things that becomes most important in the longevity of his reputation. Uh, he was known as a very uh, gentle man, uh, a very patient man, uh, and a very thoughtful man. And uh, he has what can only be described as a charisma in which uh, he attracted people to him. This was a period of intense change. Uh, uh, these civil wars we're talking about. Uh, that, that were made worse because the persistent outbreak of plagues, plague, uh, the, 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 the so-called black plagues, the bubonic plague that uh, hits Europe during this period actually uh, is first seen in uh, the Middle East in, 14, in 1347 and reoccurs every uh, seven, to, uh, or 7 to 12 years on average uh, between that period and, and uh, the early 16th century. And there were a number of plagues during this period that were particularly ferocious and killed large numbers of people. And uh, not only did the plague strike, but the plagues would be so intense that uh, people would be too ill to go out and harvest crops. And so there was a carry-on effect of the plagues in that there was a rampant food shortages, which caused inflation. Uh, which was exacerbated by these civil wars and particularly later on uh, by the devaluation of silver coins and their replacement with the copper falous, uh in order to build the coffers of the sultanate um, leads to uh, just a massive change in, in uh, Muslim society in the region. And one of the components of, of charisma is that Someone steps forward during these horrible times of change and, and, and flux uh, and provides an answer, whether that's an answer of their personal example or a religious example uh, or a new reading of text that provides comfort uh, or just a way of living in the world that provides an example for other people on how to deal with these difficult times. And apparently Ibn Hajar uh, exhibited for different people all of these things. 
uh, his understanding of the will of God uh, was uh, not necessarily different from everybody during his period, but it was uh, for, during this period, but it was differently uh, different from the average, which appeared to be uh, he did not see the plagues and he did not see these things as a punishment from God. Uh, that uh, for the sins of the community or anything like this, that uh, he did not have an idea of contagion. This just didn't exist during this period, apparently. Uh, but he he saw these things as as things that happen. Uh, they're not things that were caused by sin. Uh, sin doesn't God doesn't punish people uh, for uh, you know um, cheating on their wife by giving them the plague. And uh, God certainly doesn't, according to Ben Hajar, uh, visit these calamities on the children uh, for the sins of their parents. Uh, he uh, had uh, a number of family members, including uh, uh, daughters and nieces, uh, who died of the plague. And he writes very movingly about what the, the pain of these losses, uh, how the pain of these losses affected him. He himself suffered from the plague and survived. And uh, and uh, he his theology of 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 the nature of of calamity and how this is not a result of of God's vengeance uh, was for many people eye opening and gave a huge amount of solace uh, to some of his followers. Uh, for others, he just exhibited the kind of calmness and tranquility that people did not see in the world. And, and so he sort of exhibited a, a way of being in these horrible circumstances that was uh, amazing to his followers. And, and, and because of this, uh, this following he gets among students uh, who are the children of very wealthy members of the Ayan, the, the, uh, the elites of Cairo, the elites of Egypt, and the, the elites of Syria, he's kind of pulled up. Uh, through uh, the ranks by this wide acclaim that he has for the children of these very wealthy, influential merchants and Mamluks, uh, so that uh, he uh, is able to uh, work his way up through the system and eventually become chief judge of, of Cairo, which is the highest judicial position, the highest claudyship in the entire Mamluk Sultanate. And this is kind of what you go into, I believe, in your fourth section on court intrigues and his international fame is kind of, you know, his when he reaches this, uh, you know, this real position of prominence, but then also kind of the shifts that begin to occur uh, throughout these later years of his life. Yeah, you know, he he. Um Uh, gets this wide international reputation. Uh, earlier chapters of it that he had made available uh, to students to take with them uh, gets as far as, as we think Central Asia, uh, where he is asked for copies of uh, a, a personal copy of it by uh, the uh, 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 by uh, Timur's son who is now the, the head of the Timurid dynasty in Iran. And uh, this gets him into a little bit of political trouble with the Mamluks, uh, with the, the sultan, uh, because it, it just looks like he's buddying up to one of the most important, if not the most important foreign enemy of the Mamluks. Um, and it also it causes a huge amount of uh, professional uh, uh, 
problems for him, uh, particularly uh, with sometimes with people within his own school, within the Shafi school, but uh, most uh, famously with uh, a Hanafi scholar by the name of Ayani. Ayani uh, was a historian uh, uh, at the time, uh, uh, was a contemporary of Ibn Hajar, uh, and they really saw each other, I think, as contemporary competitors. Uh, for the uh, uh, for public acclaim and for the ear of the sultan and of other high-ranking emirs, and uh, one of the things I'm I'm fascinated by uh, is that even though uh, Ibn Hajar writes a book on why one should not insult fellow Muslims, uh, he writes scathing poetry about Alani, uh, 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 r- making puns on the fact that uh, Ain means I. And so talking about blindness, talking about, you know, styes, talking about all sorts of, uh, you know, uh, pink eye conditions and things like that, uh, in order to, to critique and make fun of Alaini, uh, he, uh, Alaini does the same thing uh, back to Ibn Hajar. Hajar means stone. And so when a, a minaret collapses uh, because of poor construction, which had nothing to do with Ibn Hajar, uh, uh, Alaini makes a, a pun on the, the, uh, uh, the fragility of stone, the weakness of stone and construction. And there's all sorts of puns that are fired back and forth. And, uh, uh one of the very interesting ways in which these high ranking, uh, scholars, uh, would lobby for attention among the IAN and the, the, uh, Mamlukali was to write these quasi anonymous poems in which they would um, uh, not usually call out the name explicitly of their opponent, but use puns on their names or references sort of, of uh, uh, you know, knowing references and analogies to, to physical handicaps or proclivities for which the individual was known and may be somewhat embarrassed of. And um, this was something that Ibn Hajar used against a number of political and, and judicial opponents. Uh, to great effect. Uh, and there were a number of times in which uh, anonymous poems would be left on the seat of the sultan in the, in, 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 in the citadel on his throne. And the sultan would come in and find uh, an anonymous poem laying on his seat and would read it. And because of the style, it was widely considered to be Ibn Hajar, but because it had no name attached to it, no blame could be specifically attached to Ibn Hajar. And... Um, uh, and one of the prices of, uh, of fame is that uh, you begin to get uh, jealousy among people within the judiciary uh, and, and also people within the higher echelons of the Mamluk Sultanate who um, were afraid to a certain extent of his popular appeal and his, his, uh, his uh, uh, reputation for uh, for uh, honesty and integrity within the system of bribes that was very common among the uh, among the the qadis. and that's why we see when reading your book how he rises to a position is somewhat excused but then placed back into that position sometimes over a matter of days, sometimes over a matter of months. Yeah. You know, this was done for a couple of reasons. Uh, he reached a point in the late part of his life as also happens to a number of other people who we know, uh, uh, well, there's actually quite a bit about these other people as well, but they they're not near as famous as Ibn Hunter for a variety of reasons. They just didn't have the following. That he did. 
um, that I would like to write a, a, about uh, at some point as well, who uh, become entrenched in the judiciary. The difference between someone like Ibn Hajar and other people like um, uh, the um, 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 oh, I can't remember their name. Uh, there's a family of generations. Well, like the Asukis, they were a little bit earlier than he uh, was, uh, or uh, uh, the Ikhni uh, clan. Uh, there were a number of these different uh, family networks, uh, usually grandfather, father, son. Uh, sometimes uncles and cousins were contained in this as well. Uh, Ibn Hajar didn't come from a, a judicial family. Uh, and uh, because of this, uh, he doesn't have the protection of a family network that these other people have. And so he's kind of left out there hanging on his own as he gets older. He doesn't have children. He does have a son uh, who, uh, with a uh, another interesting story that comes out in uh, the biography written about him by his acolyte, Asakawi, he does have one son uh, whom he... Uh, uh, married uh, uh, with a contract, the understanding that they would be divorced if she didn't give him a, a boy. And uh, this woman uh, was originally a slave in his wife's home. And she uh, came to the, the notice of Ibn Hajar and uh, asked his wife, who was a very strong-willed woman and very wealthy and very independent and well-known as a legal scholar, Hadith scholar in her own right, uh, if she, if he could take this slave uh, as a, uh, as a concubine in order to, in other words, a, a slave with whom he can have sex in order to try to have a son. And she refused. So he went to a friend of his and worked out a deal in which uh, the friend would come to his wife and explain that uh, this uh, female uh, was causing discord in her home and wouldn't it be better to get rid of her and to sell her to him when in fact it was Ibn Hajar buying her through this friend and uh, his wife agrees she uh, is uh, purchased uh, through this friend by Ibn Hajar and he places her on the outskirts of town where in fact uh, she uh, uh, does in fact become pregnant by him and and uh, while he's away uh, with the sultan uh, marching toward Aleppo uh, for an invasion, a failed invasion of, of Iran, she gives birth to a boy. And this was also during the period in which he falls in love with this older uh, woman in Aleppo with whom named Layla, uh, with whom he writes really sappy love poetry that has all sorts of do, things to do with moons. Uh, and um, which he includes in his 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 history of the period, the uh, the Inbal Homer. Um, when he returns to Cairo, he walks in uh, to his house and sitting on the uh, floor, he finds his wife, uh, this uh, slave, and his baby. And uh, as says that uh, he and and uh, his wife have words. And the next thing that is mentioned is that he very promptly divorces uh, the, uh, the slave and uh, raises the child, but in a place far away from his home. And uh, whether it's because of this sort of kind of strange situation or what, we don't know. But his son uh, does not get along well with Ibn Hajar. 
and uh, actually does what he can to try to destroy Ibn Hajar's reputation after Ibn Hajar dies. And because of this, Ibn Hajar, uh, even as his son got older and became a jurist himself, uh, doesn't have the luxury of having a son come to his defense as he works his way up through the system, although Ibn Hajar tried to get him judicial appointments, um, as often happens with uh, brilliant men. Uh, uh, the, uh, the son is often not quite the, uh, the, uh, the man that uh, the father is and is kind of a lesser light and never achieves much fame. And his only fame is really his infamy for trying to trash the reputation of his father after his father dies. And so as he gets older, uh, he's kind of left hanging. And, and uh, so when he comes down with the plague, um, he's uh, deposed for a day and is reinstated uh, when the sultan becomes uh, uh, sure that he's going to survive uh, but it was mostly in order to be able to, to charge him fees uh, and to send a message that uh, Ibn Hajar, as he was getting older, uh, didn't have the pull that he once did. Uh, I mean, he serves as chief, chief judge of uh, Cairo in a pretty much unbroken period for almost a decade, which was unheard of. Uh, he was removed for very short periods of time during that time, but uh, during that period, but uh, uh, he pretty much uh, rules the roost, uh, 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 as one might say, and um, this always caused issues with uh, Amirs and with the Sultan, who was all Sultans, who were desperate, desperately afraid of anybody coming along who might uh, have uh, become a a source of patronage for an opponent to the throne, who might be able to pull a crowd with them into a rebellion. And so as he got older, uh, various sultans, as they came and went, uh, tried to do things to slap him down, knowing in full well that they could not permanently remove him uh, for fear of a backlash among the Ayan because of his great reputation and his charisma. Can I ask a question real you, quick that will probably be edited out? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, is this all too wordy? I realize I'm probably no, not way at all. past the 45 minutes. So. No, you're fine. Okay. You're fine. We're still going. Um so let's go ahead uh, and let's talk about the final portion of your work, uh, kind of his final years, Ibn Hajar's final years, and then the influence uh, that he's left behind. You've already mentioned his, you know, his famous work, but in what other ways he has impacted uh, impacted the Muslim world? Well, you know, one of the things that are, is written about by his contemporaries about the later years of his life. Uh, was his a couple of things. One is this this transition into kind of quasi saintly status. I say quasi saintly because he was a Sufi. Uh, he was known to attend and to do vicar uh, in or these remembrances, these sort of repetitious uh, liturgical uh, uh, formula that are said. Uh, 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 in order to elevate one's spiritual status and to sort of clarify and purify the spirit and the mind, uh, he would do these in tombs, which was which was uh, uh, a, a clear sign of, of Sufi practice. He, uh, as Sakawi says in his biography, uh, that uh, he was a, a devotee of a particular sheikh. Uh, who Ibn Hajar believed had actually been shown the sacred tablets by God, 
And one of the funny things in reading the the, the published uh, edition of Asakawi's biography, the editor of that text uh, doesn't take it out, fortunately, but says in a footnote that this has to be a mistake because someone as pious as Ben Hajar would never say something so profane. Uh, and um, um, but during this period, he becomes more and more of a kind of a uh, a, uh, a practitioner of Sufism. Uh, he is not a considered a Sufi sheikh uh, by his followers. There's this kind of aura that settles over him in his old age, where people flock to him uh, simply to get his ijaza, his permission to teach, or his permission to uh, to uh, to do anything in his name, whether it's uh, issue uh, legal opinion uh, or uh, to teach or to transmit hadith or or any number of things, and uh, he becomes highly sought after uh, by people across the Muslim world. In fact, is 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 you know from all across North Africa uh, into Central Asia who travel to see him or simply write to him asking for his ijaza to transmit a particular hadith. Um, and, uh, as he moves into this elder kind of statesman status, this elder judicial status, um, he tries to avoid, but nevertheless becomes embroiled in a number of very difficult political issues, uh, most of which were of the Sultan's making. Uh, that he is able to engineer with a uh, an escape from, with a real deafness that speaks to his his wisdom and his character at this point, which uh, only heightens his public reputation as a honest broker and as a uh, as 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 a deeply pious person. Uh, I was at a conference res- recently and and. Uh, Without mentioning Ibn Hajar's name, I, I mentioned a number of, the, of what today would be considered Piccadillo's uh, uh, that he was involved in, uh, the taking of bribes, uh, which were not was not Piccadillo at the time. Uh, this issue with his uh, is uh, uh, the the slave girl, his wife's slave, uh, and going sort of uh, a third route in order to purchase her so she could have sex. He could have sex with her. Um, and a number of other things that, for his contemporaries, uh, were not seen as being negative. They were they were not inconsistent with uh, the view of deep piety and reverence uh, for which he was he was acknowledged. Um, and indeed, one of the reviewers uh, for the book's manuscript that I wrote uh, commented that. Uh, he or she was was rather concerned about the the uh, hit, if you will, that Ibn Hajar's reputation might take today if some of the things I said about him were published. Not that they the reviewer wanted me to remove any of it, but just mentioned that this might not be in contemporary eyes and modern eyes a, a terribly uh, pious. Or, or he might not be seen as might not be seen as being as pious today as he was in his time. And and at this conference, this woman, as I was describing piety, said, "Well, that doesn't sound very pious." Pious. Uh, and one of the people on the uh, committee or on the panel with me said, "Well, no, that's more pietous," which to which I took umbrage, umbrage in uh, trying to ascribe 
uh, my definition of what's pious uh, to somebody else is wrong, uh, what I'm more interested in is what his contemporaries thought. And for his contemporaries, um, both for his, his by, by his detractors and by his champions, these activities were not seen as being impious. He was never accused by anybody of being impious. Uh, and even his, his most vehement detractors uh, believed him to be a deeply pious man. Uh, he, uh, they may not have liked him because of his opinions, because of his personality, because of his following, because of his positions. Um, uh, they may not have, have liked him because he opposed them on a number of different things. But even his most vehement critics uh, understood him to be a pious man who, who in the standards of the time, uh, acted with complete, uh, completely above board. And this becomes, and this reputation gives him the ability in late in life to be able to engineer and maneuver around the political system in which sultans who wanted to get rid of him uh, and do so by entrapping him in a very naughty, uh, difficult conundrum uh, politically and judicially uh, failed to do so because he was able to always demonstrate to, to all of uh, his, his uh, to, to the audience, uh, if you will, that uh, what he did, he did for the best motives founded in the, the strongest textual evidence from the Quran and Hadith and, and for cultural practice. Um, one of the things I talk about in the last chapter, or the last chapter dealing directly with his life, is what I think is one of the most interesting examples of, of intellectual practice, which was the publication, the final publication uh, the Fatul uh, Bari fi Sahih Bukhari, his commentary on the Sahih Bukhari, in which uh, he holds a massive book launch party, if you will, in which uh, that uh, includes a procession across Cairo, hundreds if not thousands of people either directly or indirectly participate in the celebration. Uh, representatives from all walks of life, uh, Sufi uh, saints or Sufi singers uh, who chant uh, Quran recitations, uh, a great Quran scholar who did a commentary on the fly uh, as a kind of, I don't know what you might call, you know, scat poetry today. If you go to one of these poetry slams and someone gets up and, and uh, recites poetry, there was a lot of that going on. Huge fountains of of uh, uh, flavored water that I suspect was probably fermented, uh, huge uh, or banquets of food, and um, almost all of his contemporaries comment on the lavishness and the size of this party, uh, not because of its size. There were probably, and indeed were, larger parties, uh, more lavishly given. But because of the depth of reverence uh, that people showed him, even his opponents, in attending this, uh, this party uh, and recognizing the importance of the uh, Fatul Bari, um, uh, and, it, it, and it happens, it takes place shortly before his death, and it, it seems to be the, uh, just almost kind of poetic cap on the life of, of one of these incredibly important people. 
um, not that I want to, you know, turn this into a hagiography. I mean, one of the dangers of writing biography of any kind is um, that uh, you begin to like the guy that you're writing about to the point that you don't want to say anything bad about him. And and uh, I I I hope that the text is a balanced view of his life that points out. Uh, the what we today would consider the good and the bad, uh, and a lot of the difficulties that he had in uh, trying to maneuver in a system that, at times, at least in modern eyes, uh, looks very corrupt. I mean, bribes today are are uh, considered the uh, one of the worst forms of corruption, uh, but it was just uh, the way in which the system functioned for good and ill, and not that everybody agreed with it. There were a lot of people. Uh, in the period and, and before who simply refused to become caudies and would stay teachers and private jurisconsults, uh, just uh, uh, in order to uh, uh, still do some of the same thing, give uh, their opinion about what people should do. But it was, you know, these remained unpaid positions that were voluntary that people could come to you and ask for your opinion. And, and Ibn Hajar functioned in that role as well. Um, he probably dealt with far more people as a faqih who would come to him for his private opinion about what they should do. That was completely unbinding. He would issue a fatwa uh, to these people, and but it was completely unbinding. And indeed, a lot of people wanted to stay out of the the Qadi system because it was so corrupt, and uh, decisions could be uh, could be uh, had for payment. And so you you tended to get a much more honest opinion about what people should do in a private, the private voluntary system than you did in the, the, the state system, the so-called state system. Um, and, and uh, so he functioned in that way, but uh, he was not afraid to, to get his hands dirty and, and to do things that uh, many of his contemporaries and, and certainly late, earlier Muslims and later Muslims would find uh, incredibly corrupt. Uh, and st- still found a way to balance that in his own uh, understanding of what piety meant, and also for it to be balanced by people in his period as as uh, being acceptable. Um, not all of his acolytes agreed with what he did in his life, uh, and a lot of the things that are negative about him, or that we would consider negative about him today, were negative for them as well. But it was part of, from their point of view, what made someone – a complicated human being, you know, uh, Ibn Hajar was for his students, uh, not a saint. Uh, he, uh, he had a near saintly status in some ways, but he was still fully human. And, uh, he did a lot of things, uh, that his contemporaries found to be distasteful, uh, most particularly, uh, his, uh, uh, rather what would in the day be, and even some, some places today, be very liberal view of the roles of women in society, uh, in which uh, uh, during one of the plagues, uh, the sultan, and it was under the advice of the four chief judges, uh, and I don't, if I recall correctly, he was not the chief judge at the time, uh, the Shafi chief judge, uh, came to the conclusion that the plague that was being visited on the people uh, this was during Bar's Bay's last year's uh, Sultan, um, was the punishment of God for the uh, for the rather uh, uh, 
uh, immoral practice of women going outside without uh, being covered. Uh, well, for the practice of women going outside in period uh, for some of them. And he argued that this was ridiculous, that God doesn't punish uh, people because the women going out. And he had a, a niece uh, that was a charismatic preacher who uh, was uh, uh, who was uh, basically held in, in house imprisonment for most of her adult life to keep her from going out and preaching. She, at one point, she even escaped as far away to Mecca and was preaching on a street corner there before she was found and hauled back to Cairo. And the injustice of this is clear for when she dies, and at least in Ibn Hajar's mind, the injustice of this is clear. For when she dies, he, in this very dramatic scene in his biographies and in his own telling, uh, goes to her home and personally transports her dead body to the Ibn Tulun Mosque, uh, where he personally uh, 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 not only carries her body through the streets uh, across uh, Cairo, uh, but uh, performs the janazah prayer, the funeral service, over her body and then personally conducts it for burial. Uh, and it's an amazingly uh, heartrending scene in his life uh, that speaks to his view, I think, on, on not only the specialness of his, his niece, but the rights of women to be uh, to be public uh, in their religiosity, not to say that he would have believed that a woman should be sultan or anything like that. I'm not trying to make him out to be a feminist, uh, but compared to what a feminist might call some of the rather blockheaded contemporaries, uh, he was certainly uh, quite uh, 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 liberal in his view of, uh, of the rights of women. And this was, this was something that all of his contemporaries just vehemently disagreed with. Uh, and uh, thought that he was a sower of public uh, uh, public immorality uh, by holding these rather libertine views of, of women. Uh, and then, you know, he when he dies, one of the things that are interesting is that he he left behind such a large number of disciples that carry on his work, and in the the historiographical writings of these people. In their writings on fiqh and on hadith, um, he is often mentioned uh, not by name, but simply as our sheikh, uh, with the understanding that everybody knows who our sheikh is. And he's usually referred to as our sheikh in the introductions of these texts, and then just not referred to as anything else uh, throughout, throughout the rest of the text. Uh, and... Um, and his his impact uh, on on the sort of late medieval early modern Muslim intellectual environment, not just in the Middle East but across the Muslim world, uh, is immense. Mostly initially because of his commentary on Bukhari and some of his his writings on fiqh. Uh, and then uh, important writings on on biography, uh, uh, particularly the biography of Hadith transmitters, this massive collection, and he had a number of these. As time has gone on uh, into the modern period, his greatest impact um, has been has continued to be, to a certain extent, his commentary on Bukhari, uh, but more for the reputation that it has than for actually, people actually reading it. It is not a text. 
that is read uh, a great deal because uh, it's so huge. I mean, it's a massive, massive text, and uh, you know, I, I uh, have I labored through uh, huge pieces of it, uh, but uh, it is it is a massive text. Uh, the first volume is the most important volume, but even that's not read his introduction and trying to explain why Bukhari did what he did. Um, but his, his real influence, uh, over time became in his Muhtasar, his short works, uh, uh, short works, um, uh, on Hadith, uh, collections of, uh, legal opinions based solely on Hadith. Um, these things became very, very popular, uh, because they were short and they were therefore inexpensive to hand copy before the production of the printing press uh, in the, the, uh, in the Arab world uh, in the late 19th century or yeah, the late 19th century. Um, and so across the board, Mukhtasar, these short texts became popular. Uh, but his, for reasons that aren't frankly terribly clear because these were not uncommon works, his become incredibly important uh, as kind of devotional items, not really for items that uh, are used as sources for legal opinion, but uh, as uh, uh, as many of the short works of Anowawi, uh, who uh, lives uh, some 200 uh, to 300 years before Ibn Hajar, um, his short devotional his short works become devotional items that people would memorize as a way uh, as they would memorize uh, hadith uh, as a devotional practice. Um, for scholars, uh, his histories uh, become have become one of the most important sources of inside information of the period. Uh, there are a number of important texts from the period uh, uh, by Ibn Taqrabirdi, Fulham Makrizi, uh, from a number of people um, who were at different points in their lives um, insiders to what we might call the system. But uh, uh, Ibn Hajar was an insider to the, to, to the system for so much of his life and was able to recount what we – uh, uh, what we think were near transcripts of conversations and debates uh, and gave a very personal view on the conduct, sometimes scathing personal views on the conduct of his contemporaries, whether they be sultans or lowly criminals, uh, that, um, that are also at the same time incredibly human, uh, that uh, has given modern scholars uh, a very interesting uh, insight into medieval, late medieval Muslim intellectual life. Uh, uh, I mean, he would by no means was the average man during the period. He was a, a, he comes from what uh, uh, might be considered humble circumstances among his class, but uh, he was by, by no means poor at any point in his life. And so he does not, he, at no point does he represent the, the lives of the average Muslim living during the period. Uh, but uh, he gives us his works. He was a, a, an unparalleled window into the the the, the life of, of religious intellectuals uh, during the period that needs more study. I mean, this this book is part of a series, and so it is by by nature a short work. It does not give true uh, uh, justice to the complexities of his life. And there have only been 
uh, one or two other treatments of his life, uh, only one in a kind of abbreviated book form the, and uh, uh, that was based on a uh, dissertation that uh, could have probably used a few more drafts. And uh, so we don't know a great deal about him. And he's one of those figures that because of his both impact during his life and the reputation that he's had since and his impact on modern scholarship uh, deserves a far greater treatment. And uh, hopefully, if not I, somebody else uh, might be uh, interested enough after reading the book uh, uh, to uh, do a much more uh, detailed and and fitting uh, examination of his life. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Kevin. We've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I would like to end, though, by finding out what your next project is going to be. Uh, well, right now I'm I'm working on two projects. One of my problems is, is that I usually, uh, while I'm writing one book and nearing completion, I begin working on a second book, and uh, which slows the completion of the first book down. And so I'm working on two projects. The the initial one, uh, which I'm about 99% done with, uh, is an analysis, a translation and an analysis of of Abu Ishaq Ashirazi's Tabak uh, al-Fuqaha. Ashirazi was one of the most important Shafi'i scholars uh, in his period in the uh, uh, 11th century in Baghdad. And uh, his text, the Tabakat al Fukaha, uh, gives his provides his understanding of the formation of Islamic law up to his time when it consisted of five schools, uh, which uh, today uh, coalesce into four schools. That begins during the life of Muhammad and goes through uh, his companions and various layers of his companions through the uh, uh, successors down to the founders or the eponymous founders. Uh, of the, their, they, he considered them founders, but modern scholars don't consider them founders of the then five schools of law, and it's a very interesting view of not just uh, the the rise of Sunni legal tradition, but also he includes in this range of people whom he considers to be founders a wide range of of individuals, uh, members of various. Shi'i groups, uh, members of various groups that were later considered heretical, uh, to be central to the formation of his understanding of the of the fiqh tradition, and uh, it's a very interesting text uh, that I've I've completed the, uh, just about completed the translation on, and uh, uh, am working on the analysis of, and then the second project is. Uh, uh, a look at the biographical tradition around Muhammad ibn Idris uh, Ashafi, the eponymous founder of the Shafi School of Law, who dies in 820. Um, it uh, uh, centers on the uh, one of the most important, if not the most important, biography of Ashafi uh, called the Manakit. Uh, or the virtues of a Shafi, uh, written by Al Bahaki, who was a contemporary of, of, of Al Shirazi in the 11th century, uh, and it's actually composed of, of uh, citations from a number of earlier texts, uh, most of which are now lost, 
And so a big part of the project has been trying to reconstruct as, as individual units these earlier biographies and to be able to chart uh, the evolution or the development of, of the view of Ashafi's life and importance over time. Um, the earliest biography in the text uh, that, uh, that I've been able to reassemble from that and from other texts, some later texts that quote this now lost text is by uh, a biography written by, uh, which appear to have just been notes and never published outside of a single manuscript, by an early Shafei uh, scholar by the name of Asaji, uh, who lives about 120 years after Shafei's uh, death. Uh, he uh, was uh, of about 30 or 40 years younger than Ibn Abi Hatim Razi, who uh, before al-Bihaqi wrote the, uh, probably the, the other famous biography of Shafei. Um and what's interesting in, in taking apart these, these, these biographical traditions is you see the range of views about Ashafi uh, within his incredibly zealous uh, fellowship of followers, uh, probably more zealous than of any other of the uh, eponymous founders of the schools of law by far. Uh, some see him as um, a saint. Others see him as, as something less than a saint. Um, uh, he, uh, they, the people don't agree about his parentage, uh, about his place of origin, uh, his birth of de- uh, death. Uh, but what Obehaki does is he weaves all these differing accounts of the life of Ashafi and, and then rewrites Ashafi's life uh, on the model of Muhammad's biography. So that in Behaqi's telling, Ashafi is a, a poor member of the Quraysh tribe who at an early age is orphaned when his father dies and is sent out to live with the Bedouin uh, where he learns uh, original Arabic, uh, the Arabic of the Quran, which is largely lost during his time, uh, by his time. And uh, he had a choice as a young man to either become an archer or a legal scholar and decides to become a legal scholar. And um, his travels and the way that that Al-Bihaqi writes his life uh, mirrors closely what had emerged by his time as the sacred narrative of Muhammad's life. Uh, And he does this in a very interesting way by taking these very disparate earlier accounts and and while quoting them all, uh, quotes them in such a way, in different way. And he takes their original chronological order in some ways and, and changes it into a different chronological order in order to weave this, this, this uh, model of a Shafi that's, that's almost on the level of the prophet. And it's a fascinating, fascinating text in the way that he welds these things together in order to, to create this image of a Shafi that has been a lasting vision of a Shafi. Uh, and uh, and he's writing at a time that I find fascinating, in which uh, Hanafi and Maliki opponents of Ashafi were also depicting him as a uh, you know during this period when he was trying to decide whether, according to Abdullahi, whether to become a uh, archer or a legal scholar. Uh, his Hanafi opponents are presenting him as a cross-dressing camp singer who uh, rides around the desert dressed as a woman singing from Bedouin camp to Bedouin camp. Uh, in order to trash it. And so it's part of a larger cultural discourse of biography 
that is used in order to give credit to or to destroy credit of different different incredibly important figures. Wow, that sounds really interesting. We'll have to we'll be looking forward to reading that when that comes out. Yeah, sometime in, in my the future. Sisters, so. Uh. <laughs> Well, Kevin, it's been great talking to you. We'll go ahead and let you go. And thank you very much for your time today. All right. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us as we interviewed Professor Robert Kevin Jake on his book, Makers of Islamic Civilization, Ibn Hajar. We look forward to exploring a new book in the future. Thank you. Thank you.